Under tremendous public pressure and the crushing financial burden of an ever-mounting series of lawsuits, the government quietly initiated the Superhero Relocation Program. The Supers would be granted amnesty from responsibility for past actions in exchange for the promise to never again resume hero work. Where are they now? They are living among us. Average citizens, average heroes, quietly and anonymously continuing to make the world a better place. Welcome to Now Playing's review of The Incredibles. This is Mr. Incredible. I'm in. Hosted by Stuart. I'm the greatest good you are ever gonna get. Arnie. You know, I was right to idolize you. And Jacob. It's a whole family of supers. Looks like I've hit the jackpot. Oh, this is just too good. This podcast will be spoiler-filled and may contain mild language. Come on. We're superheroes. What could happen? Listener discretion is advised. Showtime. Today we're discussing The Incredibles, starring Craig T. Nelson, Holly Hunter, Spencer Fox, Sarah Vowell, Jason Lee, Samuel L. Jackson, directed by Brad Bird. This is Arnie, your incredible host of Now Playing. Stuart in LA. And this is the greatest good you are ever going to get, Jacob. I've heard that before from you, Jacob, and I don't know. But here we are. Why are we here on Friday and it's not a donation drive? What are we doing? Why am I working overtime? <laughs> well, we wanted to make sure the word got out. And quite frankly, for years and years and years, many people have been begging us to do a Pixar retrospective. Guess what? We're never doing that. There are too many films I don't want to see in that retrospective. In 2009, when it came out, that was a great idea. Now it's like, let's do a 20th Century Fox retrospective. <laughs> I never am going to see planes. Never. Do you understand that? Never. <laughs> but I have always wanted to talk about The Incredibles, because even I, as a superhero hater, was a real fan of this movie. I'm a Pixar fan. I can say that. I've enjoyed many of the movies that I've seen of theirs, and I've just felt like, yes, this will be an opportunity for us to talk about Pixar and get the word out that we're doing, well, not a donation drive, something even bigger, a Kickstarter drive to try and get a now-playing book into your hand. Yes, and let me just start by thanking everyone who's already gone to the Kickstarter page and pledged. We have been blown away as of last night, we were over 95% to our goal, and that was done in a week and a half. Yeah, I think that's better than any expectations any of us had. Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, talk about Incredibles. Take that. And it puts us at about 40% to our stretch goal, because when we started saying we wanted to do a book, let's face it, we wanted to do a book. We wanted to have a nicely printed trade paperback or trade hardcover oversized hardcover book and then we saw what it cost to print a book and we're like we didn't even think we could get the forty thousand to cover the art and the legal fees and all that let alone another forty thousand plus to cover the book printing and the shipping but we've made it so we're doing a stretch goal and we've heard your feedback so this stretch goal we've heard from people who say they also would like to hear us read our reviews so they're used to hearing our voices so our stretch goal if we can raise $95,000, huge freaking number, 
but that allows us to get 3,000 printed copies of the book. And these are professionally printed. This isn't print on demand, but like actually goes to an offset printer and professional binding like you'd find in a bookstore. Exactly. And I've seen books this printer has done. Some friends of mine who are authors had their books printed with this publishing company. It's incredibly nice. So that would mean if we hit this goal, everybody who picked a book as a reward would not get print on demand, but would actually get a nicely printed book. Everybody who pledged one of those reward tiers, a $50 tier or higher, would not only get the ebook and whatever other rewards they chose, they would also get an audiobook of us reading these reviews. And this is going to be, I'm guessing, about 25 hours of audio of movie reviews. That's right. I mean, some people, let's face it, we started talking. I want to hold a book with a spine and a hardcover and all of that. But for some people, that's just not how they consume words and, and literature. So yeah, we are going to do an audio version, and this is a great way of getting it. And then anyone who pledged at a $150 reward tier or higher, you're going to get all the rewards you're listed, plus a hardcover professionally printed book signed by all four authors, plus the audiobook, of course. So that is if we hit our stretch goal. The way Kickstarter works is we hit our goal. So the rewards we promised, we're actually going to deliver those now. We're going to write this book when we get that extra 5%. I'm not going to get cocky, but I'm thinking we can make that. Yeah, I, I, I feel confident that in the 20-some days we have left, we can find... $1,900? Yes, <laughs> I, I think it's going to happen. But if we can raise $95,000, we'll have a professionally printed book to deliver as a reward and an audiobook to deliver as a reward. But Kickstarter, if we don't hit that stretch goal, then it's just the rewards that we had for the base goal. And also, because this is totally different than a donation drive we've done in the past. The donation drives, you go to PayPal, you pay. This is Kickstarter. You go and you pledge, and they don't take any money until this project is over. So March 19th, that's the day all the credit cards get charged by Kickstarter. So I've seen some people trying to work the finances. You can go, you can pledge now, because if we didn't get funded, no money was taken from anyone. It looks like we're going to get funded, but they're still not going to collect the money until this campaign ends on the 19th. And then we'll see if we make our stretch goal. And finally, in that stretch goal, we're going to add 25 more reviews to this book, five of which are picked by people who pledge at Kickstarter. Yeah, even we don't know what's all going to be the contents of this book, but we will review that. That's right. If you reach that level, we will review whatever you're picking for us, and it will be an appendices in the book. Anything commercially released. Uh, yes, we will do it. It doesn't even have to be underrated. Yeah, it can't It can't be your home movie with your sister. It's got to <laughs> be a, a movie that was put out commercially. But yeah, we're open to a lot of options. We're even adding more rewards to help push us towards the stretch goal. We're learning this is our first Kickstarter. Some people wanted multiple reward levels, so we're going to be doing some combo packs up there where you can actually save a little bit of money by getting multiple rewards. And we heard your feedback. You said you wanted exclusive Kickstarter podcasts. So we're going to do exactly that because the listeners asked for it. Unlike any other donation drive we've ever had, we're going to put up podcasts that are only available through pledging to Kickstarter. And that means you have 19 days from the time this Incredibles review is out 
to get these reviews. And when the Kickstarter is done, these will not be released. These will not be added to any future donation drive. If sequels come out, these will not be done as sequel podcasts. These are one-offs we're going to be doing. Should we tell them? I think we should tell them. They should be, I think they should be excited to go and pledge. A Clockwork Orange. Yeah, I don't think they're going to make a sequel to that, but I really want to review it, and uh, I can't think of any reason why we'd ever get to it. We're not doing a cubic retrospective, I don't think. So, yeah, if you want to hear Clockwork Orange, it's going to be one of the options. And then, from one extreme to another, shocker. I wonder who picked that. You really wanted that to win, didn't you? I did. <laughs> you people let me down with they live. <laughs> We're never going to review it if you don't vote for it. Oh, shit, they didn't vote for it. All right. And never say never, Stuart. I'm learning. I never expected, I don't think, now playing to go for a decade. I'm learning never say never. So let's do Super 8. Yeah, I am resurrecting this. This was, it lost. It was the underrated film to the Green Lantern poll, but I'm <laughs> resurrecting it. We said we wouldn't do it, but I'm using the power of Kickstarter. Whoa. We're going to review Super 8. Wow, I, I like that confluence of energy. Good choice. Yes, let's let's do that one I was told we would never do. And then, because we know some of our listeners love to hear us review wacky bad movies, <laughs> Xanadu, the Olivia <laughs> Newton-John roller skating film that became a Broadway sensation. <laughs> I bet you didn't see that coming. I sure didn't. <laughs> so those will be available only through the Kickstarter. You can pick one, you can pick all, depending on your reward level. And yes, this is higher than a donation drive because... This is a Kickstarter. I mean, I've pledged $100 for a t-shirt in the past. Kickstarter, the rewards are thank yous, not items being sold. But we hope that you'll head to the Kickstarter page and check us out because, yeah, to get to what you alluded to, for anyone who didn't hear our Fast and Furious retrospective or our Kingsman review, I don't know why I would think The Incredibles might have a different audience than a hard R-rated comic book movie or <laughs> Vin Diesel and Ja Rule racing cars. But if you didn't hear that, what we're trying to do, just to take it to basics, is a book of 100, or if we hit our stretch goal, 125 underrated movies we recommend. And we've revealed some of those. If you go to our Kickstarter page, you can see some of our picks. Every 10% remake, we reveal two or three more films. And these could be films that you've heard of, but you heard bad things about, and we think they're poorly maligned. These could be films that just bombed at the box office or didn't get the release they deserved. These could be films you might not have heard of, but have people in them you have seen in other things. So there's all kinds of genres, all decades of film represented, but take a look at the list to see the kinds of things we're putting in there. And yes, every $4,000 we raise, we're revealing even more. But the key is, yeah, they're all underrated. Unlike the movie we're discussing tonight, The Incredibles, which I'll show a little bit of my hand. I consider to be if we did a book of the most overrated films. <laughs> Ooh, it's fighting words. But you know what? You've already shown your hand. We recorded Big Hero 6 last year. This movie came up. It's kind of what got me thinking about doing it to begin with. Is I, in my final summation of Big Hero 6, said, yeah, it's no Incredibles. And you were kind of like, thank God. So, <laughs> yeah, I think it was on at that point. We had to see what, what each other is thinking here. And this is a great opportunity to do that. Not to mention... We got another Fantastic Four movie coming our way this summer. I think that it would be helpful to have perspective and see 
well, I guess I'll I'll say a different version of the Fantastic Four. A successful one, in my opinion. And I did call it out when we did the original Fantastic Four films. This is the best Fantastic Four one. I, who knows about that reboot? Maybe it will surpass this, but for me, you want a good Fantastic Four film? Watch The Incredibles. And I'll agree with you, Jacob. This is the best Fantastic Four film. <laughs> Not high praise, though. That is a backhanded compliment. I think at the end of the summer, we're still going to say it's the best Fantastic Four film. But I'll judge that movie on its merits if and when it ever sees the light of day. I figure it will get released, but I'm just wondering if it should. But yeah, how did Marvel not sue over this? I mean, literally, this is a Fantastic Four film. Mr. Incredible is the thing. His wife is Mrs. Fantastic. She stretches. Their daughter is the invisible girl who doesn't just turn invisible, but can project force fields just like Sue Storm. How is this not lawsuit-worthy intellectual property copyright infringement? <laughs> well, because Disney owns them all now. But not back when this came out. Marvel doesn't hold a copyright on, I guess, stretchy things? I mean, you do have Plastic Man over at DC. I got just as much a Plastic Man vibe off of Elastigirl as I did a Mr. Fantastic. Yes, but a team of them, the child even turns into a human torch at the end of this movie. This is plagiarism. I saw this in theaters, and I was steaming in my seat over how unoriginal it is. It's the best Fantastic Four film, but damn it, they should be in blue outfits and have a four on their chest. This is theft. This is satire. They do a lot of things, calling out a lot of superhero movies that we've already covered. Superman, Batman, we're going to go through the movie and I'll point them out. Fantastic Four is an obvious influence, a deep influence. It is not the only influence. And the important thing is that they have to establish the superhero realm we all know in order to talk about where this movie wants to go, which is original and is pretty fresh for the superhero genre. And I can't wait to get into it because it's not just Fantastic Four, Arnie. Stuart, you talked about it going off a bunch of different tropes. This is also a Watchmen film for kids. The basic premise of Watchmen they get into on this film, which really blows my mind. Yeah, I know that DC threatened to sue because they owned a character named Elastigirl and they made some kind of arrangement. I still think this is actionable. There's taking types and then there's stealing part and parcel. And this really steals part and parcel. And to the point that Tim Story's Fantastic Four film had to go back for reshoots, new effects, and new endings because they made a Fantastic Four film, but because they came out a year later, would have been called rip-offs of The Incredibles. No, they went back and refilmed it because Tim Story <laughs> made it, and it was a terrible film. That's a cover story, but it would be nice to think that, right? Oh, The Incredibles ripped our great ideas off, and we have to go make a crappy movie now to cover our tracks. But you said you're a Pixar fan. I think around this time, I was 50-50 on Pixar, but I was all in. When Pixar put out a movie, I would watch it. I really liked the Toy Stories and loved Finding Nemo that came out a year earlier. That movie was my favorite of theirs, actually. A Bug's Life, I don't think I would have seen it, but you dragged me to it, Stuart. And I, it had Dennis Leary, so there was an in for me, but I just didn't like it that much. It had the Star Wars preview before it. You were in tears. <laughs> There was nothing that would have kept you away from that. And Monsters, Inc., I didn't care for all that much. And it was The Incredibles that started me to end my love. And then Cars, I couldn't finish Cars. It was just so bad. So 
this was probably near the end of my Pixar fandom. Yeah, I'll agree with that. I'm, I'm trying to parse all these films out. I had seen all the Pixar films in theater, except for Toy Story 1. Like that, I'm like, ah, oh, just another weird little Disney-type kids film. And then it ended up being like this great film. I'd seen all the Pixar films after that, saw The Incredibles in theaters. I didn't see Cars. I think Up was the last one. I've seen Monsters University, but I waited for it to come out on DVD. I don't know. I think Pixar has lost some of that magic where it's not exciting when I hear something coming out, where that was one of the few animation companies where I'd get excited to go to the theaters and see their films. But I was definitely excited to go see The Incredibles. I was on the upswing with Pixar when that came out. Oh, I was excited. I was going to Spain the next day after this movie was released. So I was in theaters opening night when we should have been packing for an international vacation. And I said, no, we have to see The Incredibles before we go. Yeah, and I didn't want to see it. You know, Pixar, it was funny. Like, I had stopped going to their movies, I think, after Bugs Life in theaters. And I always had to be talked into seeing their movies. But I'm always so happy when I am. I have this animation aversion. It's like, ah, I don't want to see it. Or I heard it was good, but I just can't do it. Well, whenever I get over the hump, most of the time, I'm pleasantly surprised with Pixar movies. And that was the case with The Incredibles. I saw it much later on DVD and was shocked at how sophisticated adult the writing in it surprised me. I was not prepared for sophistication, and it has always stayed with me in my mind as one of their best films. Yeah, it's definitely, if I gave a tier one, two, and three, Cars, Planes, that's in the three, Incredibles, that's in the top tier for me. That is some of the best, if not the best Pixar stuff out there. I'd say the best, in my opinion, is the original Toy Story, Finding Nemo, and Up. There's a couple I still need to see. Toy Story 3 and WALL-E may be up there. Toy Story 3 is amazing. Probably the best Pixar one out there. I-, I cried. If we were throwing a Pixar movie in the underrated book, I'd throw Ratatouille in there. I actually think it's great, too. Oh, I love Ratatouille. Yeah. I haven't seen either of them. I haven't felt like I'm missing out, either. Ratatouille, definitely recommend. Check it out. Yeah. But at this point, I mean, what we're talking about, since we are not doing a Pixar retrospective for all the reasons we've listed about the movies we don't want to do, they were a nonstop hit factory. They are almost a decade into their career of launching movies that become phenomenons. And it was a real risk what they did here. They thought outside the box that John Lasseter, the head of Pixar, said, hey, I'm going to call my old college buddy, whose biggest credit was making the bomb Iron Giant and he's going to make a superhero movie for us. Which has become a big cult classic, though. I I don't think that was too much of a risk, taking the guy from Iron Giant at that point. Yeah, there's a huge fan base for that movie. There is now, but I do think in 2000, when this was first starting, I mean, Brad Bird is a loved director now. I feel like people get excited when he's involved with the movie, but I don't think that that was true in 2000, and I didn't realize he had made my favorite episode of Amazing Stories, but the only thing I would have known him from was writing and directing the Family Dog episode, which was all animated about, well, a family dog. Yeah, I remember that short. I loved it. I even watched the spinoff series. But Bird is an outsider, and I listened to a lot of commentary tracks on this DVD. A lot of people are putting shiny, happy faces because the movie ended up being a financial and, in many people would argue, an artistic success. But it's no doubt about it. They can barely disguise the fact that the way that Brad Bird came in there from the 2D animation world 
and went with loggerheads against the Pixar process, it sounded like it was very strenuous. It sounded like a lot of egos were bruised. A lot of people were angry. A lot of people were questioning whether this was going to work out. The biggest concern was, well, let's face it. Pixar is great at computer animation of fish, of monsters, of toys, of bugs even. Their people suck. That was one of my barriers going in is I didn't understand why in 2004 you would want an animated film about people. Because if you can do everything George Lucas had been doing with the prequel films, there's nothing you can't do with CGI effects and real people. Why would you want to make that an animated film? What's the point of doing that? I still wonder, wouldn't this work just as well live action as it does as a cartoon? Other than to kidify it, what's the point? CGI is not cheap in doing an entire animated film. Yeah, it would have cost probably just as much as to do this live action with just typical special effects that you'd see in a blockbuster. It's a valid question. I think it could be a very good live action movie. It certainly was possible to do it with the same budget or maybe even less expensively. But it was brought to Pixar, and Pixar liked trying new things. I think they wanted to fix the human element. Many of the animators talked about the fact that they were excited that they were going to do acting. They were going to be able to draw scenes about domestic squabbles, things that animators never get to touch. For them, it was a new zone, and it was scary. No one ever used the word Polar Express, but when they're talking about how (laughs) some computer-generated movies with people had dead-eyed zombies in them, I I think I knew what they were talking about. They were trying to find a balance between having realistic human beings and continuing their tradition of having animated, cartoony, kitty main characters. Yeah, even if you look at the original Pixar stuff, Toy Story, don't look at those humans. They're bad. And that was a concern of mine. I'm like, traditionally at that point, CGI humans were not a thing you wanted to get a whole lot of attention on the screen. It it just dead-eyed zombie or just looked plastic. There wasn't a lot of life to humans at that point. Yeah. They went, ended up going back to the stop-motion animation Christmas specials, believe it or not. Their biggest source of inspiration that they mention Santa Claus is coming to town. When you do look at those puppets, I can see what they're going for. They're basically, it's an animated puppet movie is what The Incredibles ends up looking like. Yeah, I definitely got a Team America or Thunderbirds kind of feel off of this, especially during the scene in the water when they're all wet. They all look like Pinocchio. Again, water, very hard to do. The animators were so worried about the task of this. So many characters to animate having to deal with human hair. There was a litany of reasons not to do this movie and an untrained, unexperienced guy was barging into their world and telling them in very loud language how they were going to do it. It was a very troubled production, but I think now on the DVD, everyone seems to be very happy that out of the conflict and the chaos, they were able to put together what they did. So Arnie, why don't you give them the plot? We can get into the movie. Fifteen years ago, superheroes were everywhere protecting the public. But a wave of personal injury lawsuits led to the government outlawing superheroic activities. Now all the superheroes have hidden their identities and live amongst us doing regular jobs. Superheroes could be anyone, your store clerk or even your insurance claims adjuster, as is Bob Parr, the superhero formerly known as Mr. Incredible. Despite having married the former Elastigirl Helen and having three kids, Bob is unfulfilled working a menial job and not able to embrace what makes him special, his superpowers. So when he's approached by a mysterious woman named Mirage to take on super missions, 
Mr. Incredible returns to the scene, a secret Bob keeps from his wife. But Mr. Incredible is betrayed. Mirage works for Buddy Pine, a boy who used to idolize Mr. Incredible and tried to be his sidekick. Spurned by Incredible back in the day, Buddy had grown up to be a supervillain named Syndrome, creating new technological weapons and selling them to outlaw countries to fund his rise to fame. His intent was to kill most of the old heroes and fake an attack on Metroville, where he would emerge as the hero. But part of his plan was to kill Mr. Incredible. He captures his old idol, but never expects Bob's super family to come to his aid. Not only is it Elastigirl, but their speedster son Dash and their daughter Violet, who can turn invisible and create force fields. The super family, aided by their token black friend Frozone, thwart Syndrome's plans and save the city, strengthening their family bond in the process. And with Syndrome defeated, they return to the roles of public superheroes as credits roll. Now, the movie went through a lot of different writing phases. Brad Bird actually started writing it in the early 90s. By the time that it was being developed at Pixar, he is a middle-aged man dealing with wife and kids. And a lot of those concerns that weren't in the early drafts were now being added to the movie. But one thing he always was insistent on, and it's how the movie begins, is he wanted an opener that was counterintuitive to the way you would expect a superhero movie to begin. That you would think it would begin with a bang. And instead, what we have here in the final version is a scratchy film print of superheroes sitting down to talk about a, what a lousy job they have. I don't know if they don't like their jobs. This is a great character building piece. Mr. Incredible, you know, he's sitting there complaining, oh, it's, it's kind of like being the maid. There's always a mess. It'd be nice if the world would stay saved one day. But you get the sense from him that, no, he likes that job. And I feel it's a great character building piece, which, yeah, you wouldn't expect that from a superhero film. You would expect, you know, let's stop some big bad robot at the beginning, a great big action piece. But no, here we're learning about our characters. And they're going to get what they were expecting. I mean, Mr. Incredible is going to get time off from being the maid. And Elastigirl, who can't imagine living a normal life and all of that, she is going to kind of grow to like it. I do like the fact that when we jump 15 years, they're having to face this wish fulfillment. And here's where I first really recognize the actors behind there. One thing about Pixar is they hire very famous screen actors who you'd know their faces and get them to do the voices. We have Coach as the role of Mr. Incredible, Craig T. Nelson. We discussed him with Poltergeist, and I had last seen him, I think, in The Devil's Advocate. He's on Parenthood. Uh, he was supposed to get the Ed O'Neill role in Modern Family, but he walked away. Idiot. <laughs> and then Holly Hunter. I think that's a very brave choice to hire an actress with a lisp for a voiceover role. A lisp? She speaks weird. She's got some, yeah, she's got some speech impediment. Very distinct voice. Yeah, she's from the South. <laughs> I don't think that's a speech impediment. That's not the speech impediment. It, it, there is a speech impediment there. It's not a Southern accent. Wow. I'd have to go back and listen. Her voice is very distinctive to me, but I would phrase it differently than what you did, Arnie. I don't think they get famous people that when you hear the voice, you instantly recognize them. I think they get the right people for the role and don't think about how big their marquee value is. The mistakes I always see made by other animation studios is, yeah, let's get Brad Pitt because he's a huge star and he can be Sinbad in our animated movie. Well, oops, nobody gives a shit if it's a bad movie. You want a good performance. And these are character actors that totally inhabit this world. I would never think that Holly Hunter, if this were live action, would be great as an elastic girl. But as the voice, totally love it. 
And Craig T. Nelson, let's face it, he couldn't even fit in that suit. I mean, much less, yeah, do these incredible things that he's asked to be. Well, he couldn't fit in the suit, like, during the fat phase of Mr. Incredible storyline here. <laughs> but, yeah, and the rest of the cast, honestly, the actor who brought me into theaters in 2004 was Jason Lee. I was still a View Askew zombie, and Jason Lee had been in Mallrats and Chasing Amy and Dogma, and... He was the one who brought me into the theaters. Right. We're going to see him as we jump from the documentary into, well, we're not to know it. I did remember coming back into this movie. We see Robert Parr, the alternate identity of Mr. Incredible, driving in a car in a tuxedo. I remembered that he was heading to his own wedding, but what we're going to see is him try to juggle his normal life with the demands, the constant demands of crime, and Buddy is going to be one of those complications as we get sort of a funny ping-pong effect of him bouncing from disaster to disaster. Again, if you want to get into the maid-like lifestyle of uh, saving the world, he's trying to chase some bank robbers or something. He gets caught having to save a kitty from a tree for an old lady. <laughs> but I do love how that turns out. Like, he's got this James Bond-like car. He's not just the thing from the Fantastic Four, but he's got an awesome car that changes and it has GPS and it's detecting where these criminals are going. I love when action is thought through. I love smart action films and, like, the way he's shaking that tree to save the cat and then brings it right around to stop those robbers. I it just, it's a great moment. It, I like that kind of synchronicity when you're thinking of an action sequence. There's a lot here. I think we're just being introduced to the superhero world and the powers of these characters. I do like how they introduce Elastigirl. I didn't remember that Mr. Incredible was heading to his own wedding. I thought here might have been, and it's the way they play it off, his first meeting with Elastigirl. And I thought maybe this would blossom into their marriage, not that they'd already been engaged and they were both heading to their wedding after this fighting of a robber on a roof. Yeah, I've mentioned superhero movie callbacks. This is obviously put in here because it's reminiscent of Tim Burton's Batman, and when Elastigirl shows up, Batman returns. But you mentioned Jason Lee. He is the reason why Mr. Incredible is not able to catch the real bad guy, Bomb Voyage. Who looks just like the Joker, right? It's a bad mime joke. That, come on, mime jokes... We don't need them anymore. We have a lifetime of them. That, I do feel like they could have gone with something more creative. I guess if you wanted a Joker thing in there, you could go with a mime, but I think it was just the funny French mime thing. It was also a big smile. That was what sold Joker to me. Dom Perignon wouldn't let them call him Bomb Perignon, but the point is, yes, that amid all of this flurry, he's got time for one more thwarting of crime. But his fanboy, Buddy, Jason Lee's character, is this little kid who's so... He's the head of the fan club, we're told. And he's so driven to be like his hero that he's invented these inventions that allow him to fly around boots, teleportation boots, and he is going to insist on being Robin to his Batman. Well, here's the thing. Incrediboy is Batman. He is not Robin. And I think there's an interesting dynamic here. Like, if you're super hero comic book geek i think there's a lot of interesting conversations they don't get too deep in them but they touch upon them for people that just like to think about what if superheroes were real and there's this kind of i don't know if it's class warfare but there's the superheroes with their natural born gifts x-men if you will but then there's buddy who's batman he just invents stuff and has gadgets he's iron man whatever you want to call him 
and he's kind of ostracized. I get it. He's a bratty kid, but I do feel Mr. Incredible's a bit harsh on him. Like, this kid has got talent. He has made rocket boots at, like, the age of 10. And, of course, he's going to be rewarded for being so ingenious. The spurning that Mr. Incredible gives him is going to force him into being the supervillain he's going to be when he returns. It is, yes, much like what I think about Batman and Joker and the destiny of killing the parents. They're setting up something here early where they're they're inventing two sides of themselves. And this is completely obvious, right? Because I remember being in theaters in 2004, and as soon as I see this whole scene, it's like, well, there's the trope I've seen time and time again. This kid is obviously going to be the villain. The moment we jump 15 years into the future and there's a mysterious villain, I know it's Buddy. I mean, it's just painted on the wall in obvious letters. I'm not sure it wasn't supposed to be. In an alternate version, this was not the original beginning. Originally, what Brad Bird had conceived, he was going to start Bob and Helen as already married, living in suburbia, mixing at some backyard barbecue, and a woman was going to slight Helen for saying, oh, you're just a stay-at-home mom, and she was almost going to out herself as being a former superhero. And from that fight, that was going to be what got Syndrome to drop into their house in the beginning. What ends up being the climax of the film was planned as a beginning. And people responded so positively about the idea of having Syndrome be a more major character. There was originally going to be a bigger bad that he rethought it and reshuffled it. But I don't think it would be devastating to predict that it was going to follow superhero tropes and that he would return. Ah, but it's not a great superhero trope. I mean, we saw a similar thing in Mask of the Phantasm. It's just, I don't know, it took away from it for me that I feel this is overly obvious. And maybe for five-year-olds it's not, but... It is a Scooby-Doo plot twist. Sure, there is an element that's playing to that base audience, but I bet you didn't predict that the jumper that Mr. Incredible saved and the L writers that he saved were going to form a class action lawsuit and sue him, and that superheroes were going to have to go underground. Funny bit of trivia, the guy who was trying to kill himself was Oliver Sansweet, named after Steve Sansweet, who we've interviewed many times and I've met several times in person, the world's number one Star Wars collector. To me, why even do origin stories anymore? I feel like even general audiences get the tropes. You can move past that, move past the origins, go for a different story. And I feel the same way. Okay, so we know this kid's going to go bad. Who cares? What's the story you're going to tell? What can we learn about the characters? I don't think everything needs to rely on a twist to be good. The twist can be obvious, but the story could still be good. And this is, you know, okay, the class action isn't from Watchmen, but what results, like, this is where I feel like, yeah, here's a Pixar, a kid film that's alluding to Watchmen, which is like a very R-rated comic book. And we'll get to that movie someday, but that whole thing is that, yeah, the government passes an act to outlaw superheroes. And that's like the big premise here is why Mr. Incredible has to go away is this lawsuit causes the government to ban superheroes and make them go into hiding. Now, Jacob, I have to know who ripped off who. I've already said Pixar ripped off Fantastic Four, but I know around this time, Marvel did Civil War. Yes! Where a superhero act caused a child to die, and the government then made all superheroes register. When I see the government coming out and say superheroes must reveal their identities to us, did... Marvel ripped them right back off? When did Marvel's Civil War come out? Because I know in Civil War, there was a superhero that caused some deaths, 
And when I saw the Superhero Registration Act, I was immediately taken to Civil War from Marvel. So did Marvel just do a theft for a theft? <laughs> I think that was 2006 Civil War came out. So I think the Incredibles did it first, but they're ripping off Watchmen, in my opinion. They're all ripping off each other. It's Stuart, I, I think you're right. I, I don't know if this is a parody or satire, but it's meant to be playing off those comic book worlds that we already know yeah i feel like we've had this opener where we've seen a lot of things we've seen before amusing though they may be to revisit but now we're confronted with the idea of a world without them and that super people have to settle on disguising themselves as like everyone else and and how that becomes a problem for mr incredible he wanted to take a break and 15 years later He'd do anything to get out of his cubicle. And these are some amusing scenes. I do appreciate, again, another character actor in the voice role, that guy from The Princess Bride who keeps saying inconceivable. Wallace Shawn. I was waiting for him to say it in this. Yeah, he's done other things, Arnie. He's actually a, a writer in My Dinner with Andre. Yeah, but we want to hear him say inconceivable. Yeah, I know him from other stuff, but come on. He's from The Princess Bride. You know, I, I do think they get a little obvious with some of the character designs here. Mr. Incredible, the great big guy, and then the boss who obviously has Napoleon complex. He's the short little guy, and he's bossing him around. It's just extra humiliating for Mr. Incredible to have to take orders from this guy. But I feel like they're also tapping into, you know, I was a big fan of Married with Children. That was on television. And Al Bundy, who like had this one glory day from high school football, and now he's stuck being a shoe salesman. I do feel like, yes, this is a story about superheroes, but they bring in relatable emotions and feelings. Like, here's someone that was great at one point, and they're not anymore, and that doesn't settle well with them. They want to go back to the past. They want to relive those glory days. Yeah, I think it's really key that the superpowers each individual has reflects their problems in current suburbia. Yeah, the fact that Helen is literally still being stretched around, you know, she's still being pulled in all these different directions, sometimes literally, but just emotionally, because she's got a kid who is not able to, he's told to hide the fact that he's super fast. He's got a daughter that is so embarrassed by this boy she's crushing on that she turns invisible. I think it's really smart the way that the powers reflect the characters and i think that's key to why i like the incredibles so much that you really understand them as people not just superheroes i think the kids kind of get the short shrift i mean you have shrinking violet and the fast kid named dash i mean yes that is their personality it's a very one-dimensional personality the parents have a lot more going on the kids not long before this i'd seen the entire spy kids trilogy and i think spy kids does it a little better wow well maybe someday we'll get there i hope not did they have a movie in smell-o-vision i didn't see smell-o-vision i actually watched the trilogy because they had a 3d movie and if you can picture this that was a novelty to see a movie in 3D. <laughs> so I actually watched the whole trilogy and it's a very similar plot going on where the parents were spies and then get into trouble and then the kids have to do some saving and then the four team up at the end. And that's what you've got going on here. I mean, maybe it's tropes, maybe it's derivative storytelling. But what I was lacking here was a lot of originality, including this midlife crisis storyline that Mr. Incredible is going through where 
he's unhappy with his job and he's going out at night and trying to relive glory days. I mean, how many times have we seen this kind of movie? It's taken me back to that Kurt Russell, Robin Williams movie in the 80s, plus so many more. How many times have you green arrowed this kind of movie? I you're acting like you're being forced to eat art. This is what you like. <laughs> this is exactly what the genre delivers again and again. I think it's weird that you're citing this for things that you would praise in other movies that don't do it as well. And I disagree, Arnie. I think all these family members, besides Jack-Jack, the baby, do have a story arc. The relationship between Mr. Incredible and Elastigirl, the husband and wife, that is the central one, but Dash, he's frustrated. He has these superpowers. He never got to be a superhero. And at this point, they're not even letting him play in sports because they're afraid his powers will be found out. And that's killing him. He's got this great power, and he thinks he could be greatly responsible with it, and he wants a chance to prove that. I mean, there are conflicts. The daughter trying to come out of her shell and stop being shy. Hers is a little more superficial, I'll give you that. But I like Dash's that he's trying to come to terms that I've got these superpowers, and how am I going to fit into society? Do I have to just be mediocre and hide that, or can I be myself too? You know, I really relate to this conflict because I'm just so great. But no, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> Seriously, it's weird. It's weird to think about. Normally, we love superheroes because they are super. I think it is the novelty of this that they're shamed by it, that they're called freaks instead of heroes. And come on, you got to love him going out on bowling night with Frozone, who we haven't given any lip service to yet, but he's been dabbled in throughout the plot so far as their, what, supporting character, sidekick friend. He's the, what, Iceman? Silver Surfer? What is this? Yeah, I took him as Iceman or Mr. Freeze or just standard ice power guy. He does say ice to meet you, so really tapping into that Arnie, Mr. Freeze character. <laughs> There's certain tropes you see again and again. Fire guy, ice guy, fast person. It's just when you get so many in one place that it really called itself out as a carbon copy. But yeah. I mean, I like Sam Jackson in general. He was another reason for me to go see this movie. Now, looking back, I mean, in 2004, Sam Jackson as a superhero was kind of novel. Now I wonder what superhero movie Sam Jackson won't be in. When you look at Unbreakable, this, all of the Marvel films he's done. Yeah, The Spirit, Kingsman, I mean, all these comic book films he's been doing. Yeah. He gets completely underserved here, though. I mean, coming out of the 90s still in this movie... I was such a Sam Jackson fan. I think I wanted more Frozone when I walked in. And he's a cameo, pretty much, a very minor supporting character. He's here at the beginning for a little bit, shows up at the end for really no reason, and then it's over. Yeah, no, I agree. He is underserved. You would think that he would get a bigger part here, but I like the moment that he gets. The idea that they're going to run into a burning building that dehydrates him, and we learn that his power requires him to have water... That they end up running into a jewelry store and being labeled jewel thieves by the arriving cops and that he has to get a drink of water. That's some good physical comedy. I think this is a fun scene. Yeah, I did like the drinking water bit. That was clever. Man, it's hard to watch that scene at post-Ferguson where, like, you got a cop with a gun on a black guy and he's like, let me just get this drink of water. And the cop does fire at him. He freezes that bullet. But it was a trap. In the cop's defense, it was a trick. It was. It's just an interesting dynamic i mean you, you called it out in the plot summary here's your token black guy and this is what they do with them i i think this film Stuart, you said that there's a sophistication in this writing i do think they have these underlying adult themes they don't really come out in the film 
but they are there. You could tell. I think they've pushed some parts of it where that might be a little uncomfortable to watch once you've grown up and you've seen some things in real life. It's worth pointing out this is a PG rated movie. This is Pixar's first PG movie. This is not general audiences. You should not take your youngest children to see it. They're going to like some of this stuff. They might like the fat jokes and all of that. But a lot of what's happening here is going to operate at a much higher level than they're going to process. And including the next scene, which is the favorite of Bird and many of the animators. Not only because, yes, they get to make their human characters act in a domestic squabble, but it was done by several different teams, but it feels seamless. When Mr. Incredible comes home and he's scarfing down cake and he's trying to sneak back into bed and Helen is there to challenge him and the kids are spying from the sidelines and you have, I mean, it's not a brutal fight, but it's definitely something you don't normally see in any animated film. A family at each other's throats. Yeah, and you saw this earlier at a dinner table scene where before Frozone came over to go bowling, they're all squabbling around the table and he's lifted it up and the Elastigirl's all twisted around it. Yeah, they don't shy away from the tougher parts of domestic life here and I think that's what makes this interesting. In Fantastic Four, yeah, you'll get The Thing and Johnny Storm taking jabs at each other, but you're not going to get this deeper, real-life, emotional struggle of being a family. I mean, what he's risking here by going out and doing this kind of freewheeling, ski mask, superhero wannabe stuff is he's putting their family at risk. We learned that they've been relocated many times before. If they're outed, they're going to have to move again. The kids are going to have to find new homes and try to readjust. It's probably why Violet has turned into the shrinking Violet. I mean, they need stability, and Helen is thinking about them. I don't know that Helen wouldn't mind being Elastigirl again, but she is putting her family first, and she doesn't think her husband is. And I know you guys are calling this out as original. It's definitely not the norm for superhero films, and it's not the norm for animation. That said, I don't know that it's incredibly... No pun intended. <laughs> no pun intended. Incredibly unique. I mean, domestic squabbles, even serious ones, date back to the Flintstones. I guess when I saw this in 2004, I didn't take this as that big of a deal. It may be in the minority, but it certainly wasn't the first. I have never gotten over Barney's divorce. I agree. It is just painful. <laughs> Yeah, the fact that this is going to turn into, uh, is Bob cheating on his wife? I mean, like, did George ever have that conflict in the Jetsons? No, not there, but you've seen other superhero movies like that, where I think it was in Meteor Man, but don't quote me on that. <laughs> yeah, okay. Oh, we won't. Or watch it. <laughs> but so many times, because of the secret identity, the woman thinks the guy's stepping out, and at the end... Oh, you're just a superhero. Well, that's okay. I like the idea of seeing superheroes in the suburbia, and I think they're doing it well. I like the animation style. I'm I'm into this movie, but the one criticism I'm going to ding it is, we're 30 minutes into this movie, and it's just getting to Act 2. I mean, they really should have figured out a way to give Mr. Incredible the opportunity to be a superhero again much faster than when Mirage shows up to say, I know you were just fired, but we can make you what you were before at three times your salary. Yeah, this had to be by far the longest Pixar film released to date, right? I mean, almost two hours, isn't it? Yeah, I couldn't believe it when we sat down to review it. And I'm thinking, oh, it's a Pixar animated movie, 80 minutes. 
90 minutes tops, and it is very close to a two-hour film. That's a lot for animation. I mean, given that animation, you have to budget for every minute of it. You can't just get people on a set and film long. That is astounding to me that this was a two-hour film. And I agree, it could use a little bit of tightening. It was astounding to the animators working on it, too. They had a release date. They didn't think they were going to make it. And there were lots of things that were cut. There were little flourishes here and there. That would have made the movie even longer. I mean, in film, it's common. The director, the writer, if that's the one spearheading the the movie, if they're given that control, well, yeah, the films tend to be too long, and then you dial back. But in animation, you have to be economical. You have to choose. And many times in the process, they had to look at the budget and the time they had remaining and say, are we going to be able to pull it off? It was a real nail-biter to make it to the November finish line. But we're going to see in the second half is Mr. Incredible getting his confidence back. That, yeah, he's going to get a job he actually really likes, that he's really good at. And he gets this mission to go to an island and stop a big omni-robot. He succeeds. And I have to call out one thing though the way he gets the job i bet all of us initially just looked this right over he sends an ipad right yes i did write that i'm like an ipad (laughs) before there was an ipad long before yeah but it is exactly an ipad down to the one button at the bottom i was like oh it's an ipad and then it took me out of it for a minute to realize we're like five years early on that yeah but jobs had stock and pics he had some connection to pixar at this time so who knows that's true steve jobs was owning pixar before it sold to disney maybe there was some inside knowledge there or maybe vice versa maybe steve jobs saw this and go you know i really should kind and come up with one of those because that could be helpful regardless yes it is uh the most brilliant apple product placement i've ever seen (laughs) but yeah he takes on this job and Again, I'm just not even going to reiterate the point lest I drive it into the ground, but everything that's going to go on with the main plot is exceedingly obvious. When you have a woman named Mirage offering secret jobs, you know there's a nefarious intent behind them. You know not all is what it seems. The interesting part to me is what Mr. Incredible is doing reacting to that. He's on a fitness routine now. I like the jokes. I mean, they drew him in the 15 years earlier to be almost an inverted triangle where he was so broad-shouldered, but his waist was incredibly tiny. And now he's got this gut and they try to launch him out of the ship and he has to squeeze through and all of that. So he's out there lifting trucks because that's what he has to do as strong as he is. And I like that he's getting his confidence back and it's helping the relationship. We've seen with Bob and Helen, it's been a strenuous relationship. They haven't gone along. And now she's wrapping his arms around him, pulling him back into that house for some nookie. He's about to walk out again, pulling him back in for some more. Like, this has actually been a positive thing for the relationship. It shows you guys, if you let yourself go after marriage, no nookie. He's better with the kids, too. I mean, he has a little moment playing football with Dash. He's letting Dash run miles and miles at his super speed to catch it. Even if he can't go out for scholastic athletics, Dad's going to let him use his powers when no one else is looking. And I think that's great. Why wouldn't he? He's doing the same thing on the sly as well. I do have a question. Mirage. We have not mentioned much about her. She has largely been an agent for an unseen employer. But who already knows? Everybody knows. Everybody (laughs) probably knows. But she's also pretty hot. And voiced by Elizabeth Pena, may she rest in peace. But I couldn't place who the actress was, but it's a great voice, very sexy. 
it looks on the surface, you're saying it's helping the relationship, but it also looks on the surface like Mr. Incredible is potentially going to stray. Yeah, I think they do want to play that. And just for the record, I think she's a little too skinny. They went a little too wire thin with that character design. Throw some curves on here. I I'm, I'm, guess I'm Team Elastigirl. And later she will be checking that out in a mirror. I think she's self-conscious about that. I mean, I guess even Elastic Girls do sag in places, so... <laughs> Elastic, yeah, it loses its stretch. Bradbird put that in there because he said he saw how society really makes women second guess and judge themselves much more harshly than men do. But we do see Mr. Incredible. I mean, he's having dinner with Mirage. Yeah, he is flirting there. Yeah. He has to take off his wedding ring because he wants to be anonymous. But again, he's taking off the ring. He's buying a car. It looks like midlife crisis, right? This looks like what you do when you no longer like your suburban life. And yeah, cheating is a part of that new identity. Which again, a little kid's not going to get that watching that, but that's what makes this a great all-ages film, is that yes, us as adults, we're getting it on that level, and that is, like you said, Stuart, more sophisticated. That is, even in, I think, in a lot of superhero films, are you going to have tales of Batman cheating on Catwoman? I, I mean, getting into that level of relationships before the bat signal by Richard Linklater. <laughs> the comics do that, but it is a little bit unique in the film way to a degree. I mean, there is always the bad girl, good girl. There's usually the push and pull of you've got Catwoman on one side and Vicky Vale on the other type of thing. And I think that's what we've got here. Mr. Fantastic Mirage is in that super life. Does he want the wife who's pulling him towards the normal life? It's symbolic of life choices more than just the women themselves. This is also the time where they start introducing helpers. And uh, I wish there was a way to give them more screen time. God knows this movie doesn't need to be longer. But they have a really fun supporting character with Edna, who is a midget fashionista who used (laughs) to design for superheroes. But now, because there's no superheroes anymore... She's designing for supermodels. You know, Despicable Me is getting a Minion spinoff. I think there should be an Edna spinoff. I think I could watch an entire film with this character. She is so fun to watch. She also was doing a ton of the marketing and things. It wasn't until my research for this podcast that I found out it was the director doing the voice himself. I'm like, well, no wonder she did all the ads. The actor is pretty readily available versus having to pay Craig T. Nelson. But I do like her. She's a little bit hard to understand at times. I love her cape speech. I think that is one of the highlights of the movie. I think that was like the trademark line coming out of this is no capes. In 2004, it was still novel to deconstruct superhero tropes. We've had now a decade of that. But in 2004, an entire speech as to why capes are death is something new and fun well it it also had a line in watchmen like that's what i'm telling you not just fantastic four they're taking from all comics here even the most sophisticated ones it's pretty novel for a superhero movie it's very novel for an animated superhero movie i mean just keep in mind for pixar to risk their money on this kind of project i think it's much more ballsy than what you're giving it credit for you sound like a jaded superhero i've seen it all person arnie But for Pixar fans, this may come as a real shock. I guess so. I I mean, yes, for people who've never left their little safe world and this is their first PG film, yes, it's new to them. (laughs) Okay, it's going to be one of those kinds of shows. Moving on. (laughs) I like Edna. How about that? (laughs) I do too. (laughs) 
And I like later on when she's demoing the outfits. Any scene with Edna is a high point of the film. I honestly thought Edna should have been the babysitter. <laughs> I like the babysitter they get, but there would be a great amount of joy if they could have found more to do with Edna. But they also have a, another supporting character who doesn't even get to appear on screen. At some point, Helen has to pick up the phone once her suspicions are roused to call Snog, which she looks at a photo of an aviator from her past, and next thing you see, she's in a plane. You might be wondering who Snog is. Snog got cut out of this movie. He was supposed to be in there. He was going to be the film's central death. He is basically a guy that rents airplanes and flies airplanes for superheroes that can't fly, which is, I think, a funny detail. But they... Basically had him in the plane with Helen going to the island. When the missiles hit, he would die. And that's why that moment would be so horrific and the kids would freak out in the ocean thinking they were going to die. Brad Bird was insistent that we needed to let them know I'm not playing around. In this world, people get killed. He feels regretful that that got lost in the final cut. But at the same time... By doing it this way, Helen looks more super because, well, she can fly her own plane. That would be a, a stunner, I think. We do get a moment, Mr. Incredible, when this whole plot is revealed that Syndrome, where Buddy, has grown up. He's now a supervillain. He creates tech. He's been creating these robots to kill off the heroes. And he sends it after Mr. Incredible. Mr. Incredible hides, and he finds a dead superhero. Gazer Beam, it's a skeleton, which, again, I think that would be pretty shocking for, especially for younger kids watching this, to see if you saw Batman skeleton sitting there dead. That's a pretty scary moment that to think that a superhero could die like that. And Gazer Beam, Cyclops, right? I mean, down to the visor, another infringement of trademark. Or a, a loving, knowing parody, depending on how hard your arms are folded. <laughs> but yes, Gazer Beam has actually been teased throughout the movie. In that early scene at the dinner table, Bob is reading the newspaper. He's seeing that there's a missing person. Later, when he's talking to Lucius in the car, they're like, have you seen Gazer Beam? They've built in there very subtly this idea that they're on the lookout for Gazer Beam. You might be thinking that they're going to find him on the island, but you'd probably be thinking he'd be alive. The fact that he is a corpse and that Mr. Incredible is going to have to hide behind that corpse to avoid being spotted. I don't know. It's pretty dark. Well, and again, right out of Watchmen. Watchmen starts with the death of a superhero that kicks off the whole mystery. Why are heroes being killed off? You get that in here. It, it's much more subtle here because I think it's a children's movie or it's at least marketed towards children. So they can't say everyone's dead, but we're going to see a skeleton. But yeah, they are taking from the best parts of the genre to create something fresh. And Watchmen is still five years away from making it to the screen itself so if you haven't been reading the comics this would be totally surprising yes but credit where due just because you haven't read the book doesn't make the movie original no but they are taking you're saying this is a fantastic four ripoff no i think they have studied the world of comics to take the best parts to take the tropes to take the cliches spin them to do something new or to create emotional depth to them i don't see this as a ripoff I see this, a mashup. You got Iron Man. How different is he than Batman? They're both tech. I mean, there's equivalents back and forth between Marvel and DC for every superhero. I, I don't see that as ripping off. This is just how it works in the comic book world, and that's what they're doing here. They're doing it with a sophistication. This isn't 1970s Super Friends cartoons. This is something that has meat for adults to enjoy, too. I think that's key, and, and maybe that's not what's happening for you, Arnie, but the fact of the matter is they're taking things that are tropes and they're making them relatable 
as everyday people, that suddenly this feels like a suburban drama, like American Beauty, that has the cloak of a superhero movie. For me, a not-superhero fan, that makes it more palatable. That makes it a lot more exciting. And I do think we need to credit the animators for making us believe these performances. The voice actors are good, but it's the animators that really bring these stories and this pain and this pathos to life. When I see the expressions... When I see them apart and together, I buy this family unit. I want them to make it. Here's what I'll say. The animation, when I started this movie, I'm like, wow, animation just, you thought it was good in 2004, but compared to Up and compared to the stuff we're getting today, it is still a bit more rudimentary. You can kind of tell this is their first time with people. That said... I'm still surprised how good it was back then, especially the one thing that I kept going to was the hair. Every time, like, their hair would blow in the wind. That's just a little detail that added so much to it. You got the sense of speed and everything. You said it's the animators who sell all the drama. I'm going to credit every voice actor tremendously for this. This voice cast, head to toe, is amazing, and they're the ones selling it on me. But the animation... Yeah, very, very good. And it's not just the voice actors and animators that are selling me the drama, even the score. Now, it's kind of got this, I think, intentionally kind of generic superhero theme for The Incredibles. But uh, other times, you know, you get these dual scenes going on where Mr. Incredible, he's figuring out Syndrome's plot that these robots were made to eliminate heroes at the same time. Helen is with Edna, and Edna's like, there's a tracting beacon in these suits you can find out where your husband is if you think he's cheating on you what you push that it's like these two moments of tension and the music in there the acting all of that the way it's animated i'm gripped i'm on the edge of my seat like really into this film at this point you might not have known it was buddy coming back you might have even predicted that he was going to cause havoc or something i didn't guess this full plot gazer beam has carved chronos into the side of a cave we quickly find out that Kronos is the name of a rocket that's going to be launched because Mr. Incredible sneaks into, I guess it's Cerebro, and sees that <laughs> that's what's going to happen. But yeah, he gets outed because Helen is suspicious about what he's doing and, and he's trapped and strung up there. And we don't know for a long while, as this family basically comes together and then falls apart, they spend a lot of time in the middle of this movie away from each other so that they can come back in the climax... When they are finally kidnapped and, and all strung up, Buddy is amazed that they're a family of superheroes. That's when he finally monologues about what he's really up to, and I was stunned by this monologue. I found this to be the least interesting part of the film. I actually prefer the domestic drama. This, to me, is supervillain trope. I can't believe you're liking it, Stuart, because now you're usually the one who's like, yeah, who cares? World domination, wants personal fame, fortune, whatever. It's always the part you're railing against. Because that's not what it is. That's exactly what it should be. And what he actually ends up saying is, I'm trying to make everyone a superhero so that you're nothing. I'm trying to flip the switch so that you're the little kid and I'm just as cool as you. And there were people who criticized this film like that it had this like neo-fascist overtones because they're like, well, when everyone's super, no one will be. And we need to be the Ubermensch and we should be allowed to run the world and run as fast as we want and win all the races. I mean, there are some heavy political themes if you want to see it that way. I didn't take it like that, Jacob, because, I mean, this is said very early on by dash where he can't be special and then the mother says everyone is special and he says then that means no one is 
I mean, I thought this was all about, in a very ham-fisted way, embrace what makes you you. Whatever it is that makes you special, use it. And I viewed it as almost a backlash against that kind of millennial view that came up in the 90s and still persists that everybody gets a first place ribbon for participation and everybody gets an A plus for showing up in class. But if it was only said by Buddy here, I think it would have been more subtle. The fact that the mother says it, Dash says it, Syndrome says it, I'm like, I get it. It's playing to the most base audience. But it's not a base theme. It's a real concept that they're going to have to, I think, introduce in the sequel. And that is, yes, if technology can make everyone super, why would we ever need a superhero? I mean, I think that these are really core questions. I think it's amazing that it came back to this. Yeah, I mean, it could have just been, oh, I want to send my drone in there so I can look like a hero and they'll love me. He doesn't want to be loved. He doesn't even care about being rich. He already owns this island. What he cares about is reducing Mr. Incredible status so that he's ordinary. That's the theme of this movie is what does it mean to be extraordinary? And yeah, I guess speaking politically, what I think about is, you know, the writings of Ayn Rand. She believed that there are forces that try to keep evolution back and that basically great people will be neutered by average people if they think about the collective, if they think about society at large and equality. Basically, greed is good. Pursuing who you are is good because that's the only way incredible things will happen. This got labeled with that tag in the critical aftermath and deconstruction of this movie. It's there if you want to discuss. I think it's interesting, but I don't think it has to be a reason to like or dislike the movie. I think it's something that they introduced that is bold. We'll get a little bit of it at the end with like Dash in that race. Yeah, how do you mesh these two worlds together where people have superpowers and other people are ordinary. What is the balance there? That's another interesting superhero story that isn't necessarily about just punching people. Yeah, we'll get there when we talk about the potential of the sequel, but for this motive, blown away, and I think it makes Syndrome a very unique villain, whereas he could have been very stock very easily. Yet his entire methodology is very stock. If you took out this one speech... How is anything he does different from any other supervillain in any other movie? None, but it's a great speech. <laughs> You're asking me, like, what if you take this amazing part out? It would just be ordinary. Well, yes, it would. Well, then what I'm saying is his motivation is not systemic throughout the film. It's one bit of dialogue, but his actions are those of any supervillain. Yeah, no, and I think that that's true for most of this movie. Most of this movie follows predictable patterns of heroes and villains to make satirical points and to reaffirm audiences that want the familiar. But then there are extraordinarily bold strokes that come in here, particularly for an animated movie, that make you go, wow, there are lots of levels to look at this. I love how you're grading this on a curve. Oh, it's an animated movie. Look how brave it is for an animated movie. Uh, you don't think that makes a difference? Not in entertainment. Okay, well, then I direct you back to Mask of Phantasm. <laughs> Which I read Arrowed. But I think even when it's doing the typical superhero stuff, it's doing it above par. Like, we get this huge action sequence where the family finally comes together, the plane's blown up, they end up in the ocean, and they, they're all separated, they finally end up back together, but it's this huge chase sequence going on where they finally come together and they're smashing these buzzsaw drones and throwing up force fields. All this is exciting to me. Dash 
running so fast, he's running on water, there's your Jesus metaphor. All of this, to me, is exciting. Even when it's getting into just more of the base action stuff, they're doing it above par. I definitely believe that. I mean, even if this movie introduced no new ideas to you, you've seen it all before, it's boring, whatever, this is overrated, they're still doing it very, very well. Yeah, I'll agree that I like this quite a bit. Here's where the animation is a problem for me, though. Nothing in animation is as exciting as real people. Kids running on water in animation? Okay. Roadrunner ran on air, you know? It's like animation makes it harder for me to be wowed. But they're doing it really well. It is exciting. Live action, they don't really run on water. That's all animated, too. That's It's all special effects. I think you're splitting hairs there. For some reason, I get more into it with people. I get more into it when it looks like a real person than when it's a cartoon. It's more impressive if you make it look real. I don't think it's what they're doing that's amazing. It's the fact that they finally feel the freedom of being able to be who they are. It's the fact that Violet now can make a force field to protect her family when back at the plane, when all the pressure was on her, she wasn't able to do that. The fact that Dash saves himself basically by stopping running and falling into the water so that the drones crash into one another. I think these are the more remarkable moments. Again, if you're trying to to say this movie does sequences that no superhero movie has ever done before, you're going to come up empty-handed. This is a lot of familiar things recontextualized in a way that, again, it's the human story that matters. What's incredible about it is it's this family, and I like these characters and what they're working through. Not particularly what they're doing at any given moment. Yeah, there's certain bits I like what they're doing. When they use Dash and Elastigirl turns into a raft, I kind of like that. I like the visual. I like the inventive use of the powers. That's something that I'm sure it's been done before because there are tens of thousands of issues of Flash comics and Quicksilver comics, but I hadn't seen it. It was novel, and I like the fighting together. Gleek and Zan and Jaina, right? I mean, (laughs) he'd turn into an ice bucket and she'd be some hawk or something. Yeah, I felt like this could be a Wonder Twins moment. But if you want to talk rote, I'll give you this climax, not particularly exciting. Yeah, I'll agree with you, Stuart. This I had so much fun on that James Bond villain island with volcanoes and henchmen and, and robots and all that. Now it's this one robot. We've seen Mr. Incredible defeat an earlier version of it. We already know the only thing that could penetrate it is itself. Like This is where I feel like if you're an adult, you've seen all the signs. You know where this is going. I guess you get to see Frozone in action, that there's some cool sequences where he bust out like skis that turns into a snowboard but yeah all of this i i feel i know where this is going now of course we know where it's going we've reviewed a hundred of superhero movies at this point and they all end the same even i the superhero movie fan am getting a little jaded by this point i'll give the movie this though it escalates in ways i wouldn't have seen i wouldn't have seen The smart robot, the robot that learns, that's what they keep saying about it, learning that its own master is trying to undermine it and so taking away the remote. And I wouldn't have seen that this climax isn't where the film ends, that there's going to be that the villain comes back one last time to kidnap the baby, and I wouldn't have seen the intent behind kidnapping the baby isn't to kill it and to hurt the parents, but in fact, to turn the baby into Syndrome Sidekick. This is some plot twist that I didn't see, and the only time in the entire movie that I didn't feel two beats ahead of the screenplay. Yeah, I like the second climax. Let me be clear. 
It's really just the we have to save the city kind of. It's so familiar. I don't tend to like it in any version, no matter who's doing it, even when it's being done well. And it is being done well. It's just, okay, they all have to do their powers. They all have to work together. We can't have any blood, so it's a robot, and it gets punctured, and that's the end. And it's so dumbed down for kids, for a film that's saying, hey, be your extraordinary self. Like, twice I I noticed this, once from Violet and once from Frozone. The remote controls the robot, just in case you're missing that, kids. Like, they had to call that out twice. I I feel like that was a moment, I guess, in test screenings. Kids didn't understand that. Yeah, and that's kind of my thing, is I just don't see this as even as adult as some of those other Fantastic Four films. I don't know what films you saw. Yeah, right? (laughs) But now superheroes can come out of hiding. I guess all that it took was a killer robot for people to be reminded that they actually do need extraordinary people to save them. And so, basically, the family can be free to be who they are. They've fixed the problem for everyone. And I might have been a little underwhelmed by that whole robot thing, but I like, you know, Jack-Jack, he's the one family member that doesn't have superpowers. He's been kidnapped by Syndrome, and come on, we saw this coming, right? We just didn't know what his superpower would be. And I guess he kind of has them all. He's a shapeshifter, he's a elemental, I don't know, he goes from fire to steel to a devil? <laughs> That was fun. Yeah, I kind of liked the devil bit. It was cute. A lot of this animation, I thought it was good, but it wasn't necessarily memorable. But I liked kind of Jack-Jack at the end when he turned into the fire baby. He kind of looked more electric than fire. And when he turned into the baby Hellboy thing, I mean, it was all kind of fun. It must have been horrible for Kari. You know, we only get it foreshadowed in a series (laughs) of voice messages. This poor teenager with the big braces has been put in charge. She thinks baby Mozart is going to do it. If you actually want to know what she goes through, there is on the DVD an animated short called Jack-Jack Attack that literally shows you the hell that she's put through here. But I like it just being implied. It's kind of fun. I like the Mozart score that plays it. I did watch it. Yeah, it's a good little short. Four minutes. Won't take much out of your life. But I like that it's not in this movie. It's much funnier that way. Yeah, exactly. And more more surprising, like, just as they realize a second babysitter has arrived, there's Syndrome holding the baby. But I guess he never got his costume designed by Edna because it has a cape, and, well, we know what happens. Yeah, so he, well, I'm assuming he's dead, which, again, it seems like a pretty violent act for this kid's film. He gets sucked through the turbine. I do love the animation. Like, it is the huge explosive moment. Upstage is anything Michael Bay has done, though. I mean, I love how that explosion just rains down on the entire house and that little kid who's been sitting around watching for something amazing, finally gets a show. It That's an exciting climax to me, and it's only a few seconds long. Yeah, and it destroys their house, which it's not destroying their family. They're all bonded in the force field, but the prison that has been suburbia has been vanquished. They could be going anywhere next, and I'm actually surprised that we get one more scene after this scene. But three months later, they try to show us how they're adjusting to life as outed superheroes. Well, I don't think they're outed. They're going to put masks back on, and Dash, he doesn't win the race. He comes in second place. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want to quite upstage everyone, so I don't think their secret identities are known, but there are superheroes that are out and about. And I'm going to try not to nitpick too much, but for crying out loud, what's the point of running a race if you're going to intentionally come in second? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is an interesting theme. They talked about all this. If we're all special, no one's special. 
yeah, what is the appropriate response for these superhumans in a human world? Like, should you be competing in the same sports as them? As a comic book geek and getting involved in these superhero worlds, I do think of those kind of ethical dilemmas that would never play out in real life. Wouldn't it have been a better arc for Dash if he learned he doesn't need to run in the race instead of running in the race and pretending to lose? No, because it's not realistic. Because every kid wants to prove that they're the best. But he, that's the exact opposite. He's not proving he's the best. He's proving he's second best. And I agree, that leaves something unexplored for a sequel. Well, we do get a little hint here. We get one almost action piece, and Arnie, come on, you want to claim Fantastic Four ripoff, here you go. You get a creature coming from under the ground called the Underminer. This is Mole Man. I mean, Mole Man goes back to Fantastic Four number one, sending things up from the ground to fight them. Oh yeah, I've read that comic more times than I can count. It started the Marvel Universe. And yeah, here, I just love his lines. It's like, I am beneath you all, but nobody's beneath me. It's, I mean, in a way, it kind of goes with that theme. Everybody's equal. Well, he thinks he's beneath everybody, and he's the lowest on the rung, but... This movie is about self-esteem and worth and the underminer. I, I just think, yeah, he's a literal underminer, but I also just think that it's fitting. There's a superstition around Pixar that you gotta cast John Ratzenberger in every one of the films. We're not doing a Pixar retrospective, but if we did, we would see Cliff from Cheers in every single one doing a voice, sometimes a big one. You know, he's Ham in the Toy Story. I think that's his most prominent one. He's the piggy bank. But Brad Bird, he was constantly the outsider. He's like, nah, we're not doing it. I don't got a part for him. But when they finally got down to this and they're like, well, we need a voice for the underminer. He's like, all right, call John. <laughs> and it worked. They did have that curse. This was an incredibly successful film, pun fully intended that time. But did it rank for us? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend The Incredibles? Jacob. Yeah, I obviously re recommend The Incredibles. I do think it is, I'm not going to say an incredible movie. I, I think it is a great movie. It, it's entertaining. It works as an all-ages film. Little kids are going to enjoy the action. As an adult, I enjoy the emotional depth to it, the family drama, the conflicts that even though, yes, these are about super people trying to be as super as they can, they still have a human side that I can relate to and I can still see those struggles that I'm going through. And I think they successfully take all these different ideas from comic books and merge them into one film. Arnie, you're saying, oh, I've seen this, I've seen that. Today, the best-selling comic every month maybe sells 100,000 copies. When Iron Man, the first Iron Man came out on DVD, that sold 7 million the first week. People are seeing these superhero films that aren't familiar with the tropes, that haven't read Fantastic Four number one uh, many times. So I think that this works for a general audience, but for me, someone that has read comic books, yeah, I appreciate that they're taking all these different ideas and coming up with an emotionally deep story that you don't see, especially in a lot of superhero films. I, I would say this trumps most of the character development we've seen in Marvel and DC films. So for me, this is one of the top-rated Pixar films, but just a top-rated superhero film for me and a very strong recommend. Stuart. Yeah, the thing is, usually when postmodernism is introduced in superhero movies, it's laborious, right? I mean, even when I like it, Christopher Nolan, uh, Batman Begins would start the next year. I don't think of those as movies you'd want to take your whole family to. I mean, this is a family-friendly version of Watchmen and Unbreakable and all those movies that try to define what superheroes really mean and put them in the context of our real world. I think this is an incredible film as an intro to do that. 
I don't want to demean it by just saying it's a great animated film or a great superhero film. I just think this is a great film. I think it has great characters in it. I think the animators achieve, along with the voice actors, incredible performances. And I think, yeah, as now an expert of having seen so many superhero movies, this is right up there for me with Iron Man and Captain America Winter Soldier. It's just, it's that good. You definitely have to see it. Even someone that is animation challenged should really get over that and appreciate The Incredibles as an incredible film period. I'm going to disagree with that. I think you're heaping on praise that honestly, you say you're not going to demean it by labeling it as an animated film, but yet this whole podcast, I've heard you praise this film where we've seen live action films do the same thing and not get the same praise. I think you're grading on a curve. And I think because this is animated, it somehow impresses you more by delivering something that you don't expect from animation. And that's fine. I normally don't watch animation anymore because I find it to be, by and large, less sophisticated. It's often either lower budget or aimed at a younger audience. And maybe that's why you're surprised to see themes in animation, whereas I don't grade on a curve. I want entertainment and entertainment, be it intellectual based upon theme or visceral based upon action. And it's much harder to sell me the action in animation. And a lot of times I don't feel it has the theme. Sometimes it does. Toy Story, Finding Nemo, Up. Those have tremendous themes and characters who I connect with emotionally. They resonate with me. And The Incredibles doesn't. I think the voice acting does great. I think the animation is great for the time. I don't think this movie breaks any new ground. I'm going to give it a recommend. I stand by that it is the best Fantastic Four film, and I green arrowed Silver Surfer. You did? And this is better than Silver Surfer. Oh, for shame. So, yeah, I'm going to give it a weak recommend, but I think it falls far short of Incredible. And unlike Boyhood, where we had that review, and Stuart, you really enlightened me as to why people love that film and I didn't get it. Here, I'm still kind of scratching my head to see why you guys damn some of the live-action films we've reviewed, and yet you heap the praise on this one, because, no, I just didn't find it entertaining, I didn't find the characters original engaging, and I'm not saying I've seen it all just because I've read comics, I've seen it all in comic entertainment multimedia, be it their TV series, animated or live-action, Smallville, Arrow what have you, or the movies we've reviewed that came out before this one. So, it's fine if you want more superhero entertainment or if you like Pixar. Yeah, weak recommend. You can do worse. You can also do much better. Better than Big Hero 6? Big Hero 6 had a style I actually liked more and felt a little less superhero-y. There were so many things in common between this and Big Hero 6. I almost find myself a little bit more ambivalent with the Incredibles that I do Big Hero 6 because I liked the San Francisco type thing. I liked that merging of ethnicities. I liked the more multicultural where it didn't feel like the token friend coming in with Wasabi and all that. But this one does have better character arcs. So I'd kind of go on par. On par. Well, okay. Uh, we, we can leave this alone for now, but I don't think we're leaving it alone forever because I can't believe that we have a Cars 2, a Plane spinoff, Monsters University. All of these spinoffs, they're making sequels to everything. There'll be a fourth Toy Story movie. 
we still don't have that incredible sequel. Although, they said as of last year even that Brad Bird is trying to write the script now and that it is in active pre-production. They did do some sequel comics, strangely enough. It didn't last very long, and now that Disney owns Marvel and Disney owns Pixar, you'd think there'd be some synergy there, but it has not happened. So yeah, maybe... I think, according to IMDb, in 2017, we'll be revisiting this. We did it now to make sure we got the word out about the Kickstarter. And that's why we didn't hold off. But yeah, if, it's how now playing works. Come 2017, if The Incredibles 2 comes out, we'll be reviewing it. And I hope I like it better. Yeah, I do too. Or, or maybe, well, if you took 10 years off and came back and still had the same reaction, I don't think you're going to feel differently in three more years, but I don't know. That was the surprising thing to me as I saw this in theaters. I didn't like it, but for 10 years I've wondered, is it because I was going on that trip? Is it because I just wasn't in the right mood? Was it me that night? Going back and revisiting this film for the very first time, and realizing I just don't find that film to be that special. At least I can stand firm in my opinion versus just going off of a decade plus old memory. I can't be too harsh on you because I think I feel that way about Spider-Man 2 the way that you do about this movie. <laughs> we all have the ones and I'm already expecting the listener feedback. Well, <laughs> this and Batman begins. <laughs> yes, or you're Batman and Robin. <laughs> <laughs> Which I've gotten less crap over than you not recommending Batman Begins. <laughs> that is a more controversial statement. As long as the listeners are engaged, I will take their feedback in stride, constructive or non, so long as they're engaged and support now playing with our Kickstarter. That's right. If you are ready to pledge, and again, you don't have to have the money, but you just want to say, I'm in, the way to do it is go to nowplayingpodcast.com. The banner at the top of the page will take you to Kickstarter, and it's very self-explanatory after that point. So we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. It was ice of you to drop by. No matter how many times you save the world, it always manages to get back in jeopardy again. I mean, sometimes I just want it to stay saved, you know, for a little bit. Thank you for listening to this Incredibles episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. That's the way to do it. That's old school. Yeah? <laughs> no school like the old school. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another movie review. Thank you, Mr. Incredible. You've done it again. And don't forget, at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find a link to our Kickstarter page to help fund the first Now Playing Podcast book. The details and the link are at the top of NowPlayingPodcast.com. You, sir, truly are Mr. Incredible. Also at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find more movie reviews, including Batman, Superman, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, The Fantastic Four, The Avengers, and hundreds more. Oh, man! I'm still geeking out about it! While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Come in one hour, darling. I insist, okay? Okay, goodbye. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post written movie reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. Stay hidden. Keep each other safe. I'll be back by morning. 
Now Playing is an independent podcast with no sponsors or ads. It's donations from listeners like you that keep Now Playing on the air. You can give money by clicking the support link at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. So what are you waiting for? I don't know. Something amazing, I guess. Me too, kid. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. I feel like the maid. I just cleaned up this mess. Can we keep it clean for for 10 minutes? Now playing credit narration by Brock. You sly dog. You got me monologuing. I can't believe it. Now playing is not affiliated with Pixar Studios, the Disney Company, or the makers or distributors of these films. The film discussed in this podcast is the intellectual property of its copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Lame, 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 lame! The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Well, I think you need to be more... flexible. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Yes, words are useless. Come, 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 come. Too much of it, darling. Too much. Go, confront the problem. Fight. Win. And call me when you get back, darling. I enjoy our visits. Yeah, it can't it can't be your home movie with your sister. It's got to be a, a movie that was put out commercially. But yeah, we're open to a lot of options. So unless it's uh, a home porno you made with your sister, in which case I will review that for you, <laughs> but not put it in the book. <laughs> Maybe put it in the book. <laughs> the guy who was trying to kill himself was Oliver Sandsweet, named after Steve Sandsweet, who we've interviewed many times and I've met several times in person, the world's uh, number one Star Wars collector. Oh, I thought he was famous for suing people. I'm, I'm glad it's for something more uh, <laughs> beneficial. He, he doesn't come out looking so good as a character here. I'm not positive. I haven't asked Steve if that's the tie, but according to IMDb trivia, it is. I'll ask Steve next time I see him. But it feels seamless when Mr. Fantastic, Mr. Fantastic. Yes, it's that big of a ripoff. <laughs> yeah, I think they do want to play that. And just for the record, I think she's a little too skinny. They went a little too wire thin with that character design. Throw some curves on here. I I'm, I'm, guess I'm Team Elastigirl. Yeah, she has the big booty there. She's almost J-Lo. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. I, I'm not uh, I'm not wanting to get down to evaluating <laughs> whether I'd have sex with a cartoon. No, no, I'm actually just saying she let herself go. She got really wide-hipped 15 years later and got some junk in that trunk. <laughs> Just talking about character design here, and that's all. Character development. I mean, if Mr. Fantastic gets fat, so does his wife, right? She just carries it in her ass. <laughs> Inventive use of the powers. That's something that I'm sure it's been done before because there are tens of thousands of issues of Flash comics and Quicksilver comics. But 
I hadn't seen it. It was novel. And I like the fighting together. Gleek and Zan and Jaina, right? I mean, <laughs> he'd turn into an ice bucket and she'd be some hawk or something. Yeah, I felt like this could be a Wonder Twins moment. Can't believe we went to the Wonder Twins. <laughs> hey, I'm just saying they couldn't come up. She could be anything. It was so frustrated. Jaina could just, that pissed me off. She'd be like an ice fortress. <laughs> but huh? she could only be water. No, the the guy was always water, wasn't oh, it? And the right. chick yeah. got to become oh, you're the right, cool you're stuff. Right. Yeah. But my point, whoever, I hated them both for the haircuts. But basically, <laughs> yeah, they could basically be whatever they wanted to in ice form. You know, when Marjorie and I got married, we got back from our honeymoon and we were just sitting on the sofa for the very first time. And then all of a sudden we looked at each other and in unison said, Wonder Twin Powers activate and touched our wedding rings <laughs> together. So... <laughs> Well, there's a reason you're both wearing rings you weren't wearing before, but, uh, you know, I hope that's the last of Zayn and Jaina we ever discuss. <laughs> there's a Justice League movie coming. Ugh, they better Everyone not. else is in that thing. Why not? They better not. <laughs> They'll at least have a Gleek cameo. Ugh. Fantastic Four put in Herbie the Robot. <laughs> I just don't see this as even as adult as some of those other Fantastic Four films. I don't know what films you saw. Yeah, right? <laughs> I, I dare you to go back and rewatch any of them. I have since our review, and I you will again this uh, Silver Surfer. Oh, wow. I never want to hear that you have no free time again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You got time if you go back to Silver Surfer. Hey, I've rewatched both Ghost Rider films, too, but there's always a reason. <laughs> Jesus. Hmm. Hmm. We'll have it out to you as soon as we can. Okay, I didn't have a single good quote for an end line. You guys got one, or? Oh, um, shoot. I didn't even think to think of one. Um, I'm looking now through the IMDb quotes. To infinity and beyond. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong film. You've got a friend of me? <laughs> we could do the Toy Story one real easy. Here. So we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. It was ice of you to drop by. I was just going to suggest that one. <laughs> okay. It almost doubles as a Batman and Robin quote, but... Cool quote. <laughs>